0: a nice sync point
1: that we can put it onto. Right, okay then.
0: I've also got a nice little stop up on my on my laptop. Oh that's like very a, nice. a timer. Okay then, yeah. I think it's pretty cute. Alright. Um I also I asked my friend Harry if he wanted to do um if he wanted to like write a little jingle for it. Yeah. That would be really funny. <laughs> oh that would be amazing. Uh I don't know how what, what state he's at with it, but um I think it'll be easier when I've sort of given him more of a premise of what it is or what, what to do.
1: Yeah, you've yeah, that's way further along like the development stage than I thought it would be, because I was yeah. <laughs> I was all ready to try and have the awkward stage of like, so how do we introduce this? And I would definitely then, go
0: immediately for um for for an intro theme. It just it's, oh it's yeah yeah
1: yeah. I was saying in terms of like, do we just drop it in the middle of? Do we come up with a cool introduction speech, or should we just give more of a you're just drop being dropped in the middle of a conversation vibe?
0: I think definitely dropped in the middle of a yeah. conversation. Maybe we should right?
1: just make this I've... this discussion the intro and then people
0: will just yeah. listen to that. There you go. I mean, yeah, I've listened enough to the um that James Acaster podcast where they just they, to- they talk about random faff and then it just starts like randomly 20 minutes in that's when the podcast starts.
1: Yeah. we'll we'll talk until we come up with a good opening random quote. I mean, not now because we've already talked, but we've I mean st- later. Yeah. We've established. Yeah. yeah. And everyone's and if this does go through, then everyone's hearing the origin of this plan right now, yeah, very exciting
0: um, yeah they the' they're the scene behind the scenes behind the curtain
1: yeah, interesting insight so well since this is the first um since this is the first installment of whatever this is, I thought a good start point would be to talk about good beginnings of things. You know, so it could be the yeah, pilot pilot episode of a or the first episode of a TV show, first instalment of a franchise, direct director's debuts, you know, stuff like that. And so, I guess since this was my idea, I'll open with an example of what I think is a really good starting point for oh, this particular do. show, which is the pilot. Oh, okay, that's great then. The pilot episode for Future Armor, because I think it's. What you've got there is just a really great example of a show that sets a standard in terms of this is the concept, this is the theme, these are the characters, and you got. I mean, even before the opening theme plays, you have this is Fry. You get snapshots of his life, and then you have him frozen, falling into the you know the the cryogenic chamber, and then waking up in the future. And then there's that great opening line where he's like, my entire life is, is you know, as I know it, it's all gone. I'll never see it again. Yes! And, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> all... And that's it. And then the show starts. And then you have this great introduction to this world.
0: Yeah, and, like, it, it, I think it deals very well with that kind of, you know, separation of they have... Because they. they I think in the original episode they go um, underneath the city where old New York is, don't they? yeah. And like so, you see like the the decrepit, um, like dilapidated city that it used to be, and then this whole futuristic thing, and we see the introdu- a fantastic introduction to Leela, obviously, and she yeah. changes her character like immediately and becomes who we who we know and love. Yeah. Same with Bender as well.
1: Mm. And they immediately establish a connection between all of them as well, which is even more impressive because you have this this idea that even though it's the future and everything's highly advanced and technological and they're in this giant futuristic city things are still people can still be isolated and lonely and that's sort of if anything that's what the main I would argue the main theme of future armor is even though it's a you know a satirical cartoon it does a great job of presenting characters who are sort of lost in this the vast landscape of the future
0: yeah I'd even say because um, it's, it's that's something that uh, disenchantment Always uh, kind of failed for me is that that I never yeah. felt that same sort of connection.
1: Yeah, well, Disenchantment as well. There's there's a really big problem, namely just that it tries to. It's not nearly as original in Future Armor just based on premise alone, because with Future Armor the main thesis is this idea that the future isn't a utopia it isn't a dystopia it's just as random and pointless and weird as modern life you know like you go to the moon in the second episode and it's just a tacky theme park yeah and whatever which meaning is you fantastic comment yeah and whatever meaning you get from that but it's still even with that, it still sort of holds meaning to Fry, and it's still you're still treated with the weight of that. But with disenchantment, the problem is that it's sort of trying to offer this commentary about you know fantasy epics aren't really that great, and a lot of people would be living in poverty. But we've already had stuff. We've already had work that comments on that with stuff like Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's popularized this idea that actually no, if you are an average person in a fantasy world, your life would be literally a nightmare. You'd live in squalor. Uh, except
0: we're, we're following a princess anyway so yeah. it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah, but any sort of gruesome and vile components of the story don't really contrast that well. well. I
0: think that it's definitely a victim of its time in the sense that if it came out 10 years ago it would have been much more well regarded yeah not only because that was before the death of futurama and also the simpsons
1: Mm. well we made it like four minutes in and i remember thinking with futurama if i mention this i'm going to try to talk more about futurama and how great that is than how disappointed i am with disenchantment so i've done (laughs) well with that uh, i brought up disenchantment so yeah well it's it's hard to not snowball into that one but with Futurama as well, within the pilot, some an element that I don't think gets talked about as much in terms of Futurama is just the great world building they do within that series. Generally because of how, I mean, of how watertight and how established that world is. I mean, there's a there's an entire bureaucracy for people who have been cryogenically frozen and there's an entire system in place for how to integrate them into the future society that they've now found themselves in which is such a weirdly brilliant idea to bring to the table in a first episode among everything else
0: yeah i'd like you you never despite it being such a completely you know new world new environment um you never once feel any more alienated than friars yeah like and- he comes out and he's very much you know you know he sh- he's shocked with how things are different, but yeah. you never get that full on like fish out of water kind of scenario. Yeah,
1: and then there's little like nuances in the in the society, like the 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 um the tubes that go all across New New York and the suicide booths, which is just still makes me laugh.
0: And the fact that like they're they're all moments that like the suicide booths and the tubes, they're never not there. They're always just part of the city they're like they're a visual gag that always just keeps on giving and they're yeah and they're always going to come back especially with the amount of times that bender uses the suicide booth throughout the series yeah
1: oh that's yeah that's such a brilliant <laughs> this is less about the first episode and more throughout the entire show but they establish a pattern of bender using the suicide booths as a way to get attention so as a cry yeah. for help i've decided to kill myself and that's it that's how it's even though they've never actually established whether a suicide booth would actually hurt him because I mean in the first episode they show him the method they use is to you know stab whoever's inside them to death but does that affect Bender at all like he's a robot wouldn't that it yeah the, you know, it's I, I've always found that, that method
0: of death very terrifying yeah like if I was if I wanted a suicide booth I feel like I'd want it to be a lot quicker um and a lot less violent
1: well to be fair there is an option in it don't they say would you rather have uh quick and painless or slow and horrible and fry asks Oh and
0: yeah, is quick and painless doesn't he
1: no he asks or he's just like
0: i want to i, I want to call somebody or something
1: well yeah yeah fry says i want to place a collect call and then it's the suicide booth responds with you've chosen slow and horrible and then Bender says, yeah. "Great choice." And also another thing is, Bender uses the trick where he has a like a coin tied to a piece yeah. of string. So even in death, he wants to screw someone out of getting paid.
0: I mean, to be fair, like who carries around quarters these days?
1: I mean, especially not now. Like let alone days, yeah. a thousand years from now.
0: If anything, that's like it's more of an antique. They're probably worth a lot more.
1: Yeah, I also just realised that in this same joke, Futurama predicted you know, terrible voice controls. So they're still, they're going to be telling us, they're going to be predicting things forever. Clearly, genius show, obvious. And another, the other big thing that stands out from that pilot is just the general tone of it, because the sense of humor and the sensibilities of the show, and not just with the jokes, but the storytelling in general are all there. It's like purpose-built for, for, right, you've got your premise now, you've got your tone, and run with it and see where it goes.
0: Yeah, I I always... Like, obviously, as it is a pilot, it's not fully formed. Yeah. And you don't get, like, the sense of everybody's character in the same way that they become. Mm. But there's still... There's the hints there. You you never think, oh, my God, how did they become what they are from this? It all makes sense. And Mm. I think
1: that's just great. And there's even small conflicts, like um, Leela's homeworld, thing like she she mentions in that episode my parents abandoned me here and i've no idea what planet i'm from and that would sort yeah. of carry over through the rest of the series so yeah. yeah because
0: they 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 were vague enough about enough things that they could use them as plot points without and they could change them without yeah. having to like sort of wreck on themselves hmm.
1: so overall good good beginning let's try and live up to that yeah that, uh, that's
0: that's a we'll do like a, a sort of a, a two-ended scale yeah that's our top end
1: Oh, yeah, that's because I do also have some bad beginnings here oh, listed good. as well. Because I have um, nothing. Oh, good. Because, well, I say bad, but this is. So I was thinking of directors' debuts, and I thought, well, are there any really terrible ones? And of course, that's difficult because, I mean, bad pilots in itself is a similar dilemma because if a pilot of a TV show is bad, then it just gets cancelled. It doesn't get taken through. So there aren't really that many atrociously terrible pilots. And there also aren't that many atrociously terrible directors' debuts, because if they're that bad, they just end up being the only effort from that director. Yeah. So, But something that sprung to mind in terms of a bad beginning that's then gone into a great career was David Fincher, because his first film ended up being Alien 3. Which... yeah. And I've heard a lot of defenders for Alien 3 who, you know, admire what it was trying to do and there is an assembly cut which i i don't think i've seen because they played a version the first time i saw it was when they played a version on tv and i don't know if that was the original yeah, or I just the,
0: that was definitely the original yeah. cut
1: but what i what i do know is that fincher hates the film so much that he didn't even want to be involved with any sort of director's cut or improving it in any way Oof, so that, yeah so that's be rough. and i think it's i think it says a lot as well because as far as you know dream sort of debuts go on paper that seems ideal because you've got ridley scott and james cameron and fincher would seem like the ideal can especially now looking back on his whole career he yeah. seems like the ideal person to take that forward and it just
0: i suppose in a way i'm not sure if i would you know naturally put you know ridley scott james cameron then david fincher i feel like putting fincher in like in the in the trilogy position of the third film of a trilogy maybe
1: um... i i was just thinking more in terms of Three really great filmmakers who are of sort of the same caliber but also distinctly different. Yeah. And you, so, you know, Scott sort of makes the first one. He always referred to it as like Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Space. So, you get yeah. a, a really well made, well crafted horror film and then with James Cameron it goes more in the direction of action but still retains a lot of those suspense and dread elements and then for Fincher you might expect him to take it in a more psychological route which and yeah, the setting seems <laughs> like the setting seems like it would suggest that as well by being in a prison like it's a, you're back to this isolated claustrophobic place yeah but um but yeah it does none of that so it's <laughs> yeah
0: cuz um, if i'm right if i'm right in saying um cuz alien and aliens they both, you know, relate to is it is it aliens or is it Alien Three that kill off the like two really important characters? Yeah, Alien beginning? Three
1: kills off Uh, Newt and I think it's Hicks Bishop? in the same. I think I forget yeah. the soldiers' names too often, which I know is weird because a lot of people think. Isn't them, it
0: the isn't it the um, oh, what's it called? Bi- the, not Bishop dies as
1: well. Yeah, Bishop. He gets yeah but then he reappears at the end of Alien 3 cuz he's like I'm the template for all the androids or I'm a different android it's uh, it's really confusing and i haven't seen it in a long time yeah and I, it's it's just not good yeah uh, yeah basically it's sort of the effects on the alien themselves look really shoddy as well there's a lot of green screen you know and, and yeah, a I, lot me- of, I remember that
0: um the lava not looking good like uh, that's i explicitly remember that yeah. being a kid looking at it and going that is bad Mm. I don't like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's the whole confusing part action. It, it feels like it should be an action scene, but it's not that exciting or really investing. And it's very unclear what's going on when they're trying to trap it in sort of the corridors with all those metal doors going down. And you just Yeah, like... and
0: I feel like there's that point where the lava's chasing them and they've got to climb out and they're being chased by the alien. Yeah. Um, I do That's sort literally of... all I remember
1: from Yeah. That. I do sort of sympathise in a... To a certain extent, because I was about to say, I think the alien loses a lot of presence. But in Aliens, and I, I'm not. This isn't necessarily a fault of that film either. But it's something that by suddenly having a lot of them in the sequel, as opposed to just one in the first one, you suddenly make them just one of them seem like a lesser
0: threat. So yeah, so by the time they, the they third one, so many in yeah. The second
1: one. By the time the third one comes around, it's sort of like
0: a de-escalation. Of well, how does this become exciting now? Yeah, because you'd have to make it like a more powerful version of the alien. Yeah, and and I think that's almost something that the rest of them. Yeah, might, since then, I was about to say, none with. of
1: them have really
0: worked out how
1: to do it yet. So Ugh, yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't shit. think of it. the The weird thing is, Alien Three. It's I brought it up because it's a bad film within Fincher's sort of filmography, but it's not. In the long run of things, it might not even be the worst Alien film. So, I mean, I don't no, think... No, I mean, mean it's, it's definitely not as bad as Resurrection. No. And then there's...
0: The very fact that Resurrection exists is bad.
1: Yeah. And if you want to count, you know, versus Predator as well, even though the first one... I, you think I, the first one's I, I, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. But then at least we can all
0: hate Requiem. Yeah, recruit's not fun. Yeah. The, the only thing that I, I I really don't like about Alien vs. Predator is that like I wanna see the fight scenes, I don't want them to be so dark.
1: Yeah. I think
0: that's the problem. It was like they, they went, don't. Oh god, we don't wanna we don't want Godzilla situations like the sixties Godzilla where Oh you can yeah, see everything looks... and you could see the rubber suits and like I just I wanna see the badass um predator flipping the alien by his tail and slamming him into a wall. It looks really cool, but also I don't care about the human story. Yeah. Don't give me a human story. Just give me Alien versus Predator. It's in the title. That's all I want. Yeah. Well, segueing out of this, because you've said... I don't know if
1: it's a segue anymore, if I point out that it's a segue. But anyway, because... I was gonna going to mention this later, but because we've talked about versus films and the idea of putting two people against each other, it reminded me of another bad beginning. Bad beginning to an attempted franchise... As of now, there have been no sequels so far. But uh, Tom Cruise's The Mummy, because oh, this was yes. this was supposed to be the start of Universal's Dark Universe. They were gonna start. Well, didn't know, they
0: try to start it with like I Frankenstein, and then well, yeah, there's that a lot work.
1: of there's a lot of conflicts because there was I Frankenstein, but I don't know if that was ever intended to be part of it. They did one thing I that think I it's do know. One thing that was supposed to try and kick it off again a few years prior was Dracula Untold which did yeah. which didn't do well either critically or commercially and so they sort of scrapped that in for way of you know the mummy but then the mummy is just as if not even worse than Dracula Untold so at this point yeah. they might if they were to pick it up again they might as well just throw them in together
0: like i th- i think i i hadn't watched the mummy like the yeah. one for a while and it was on TV the other day yeah. and i caught a lot of it mm-hmm. i didn't enjoy a lot of it yeah um, and it, I just what I don't, what what really makes me sad is that there is a significant number of people who will regard that as the Mummy movie, when yeah. we've already got the perfection, three fantastic, that is Brendan Fraser, movies. you know. And you're right. I said three you because said three. all, all three, three of them yeah. are great. <laughs> I love the Mummy. I love the Mummy Returns, and I still love Tomb, Tomb of the, the Dragon, Dragon Emperor. Emperor. I
1: mean. You've got to love a film where yetis turn up and out of nowhere... I mean, it's not out of nowhere. They're in the Himalayas. That's where
0: yetis live, but... Yeah, and you've got to love a film where they're in a plane and then they've they've got, like, five people and a yak and the yak vomits and he goes, the yak yacked.
1: Yeah. Why is there a yak on the plane anyway? I don't know what is it for carrying stuff. Is that? I I, I don't remember. Do they I'll be need honest. milk when they're halfway up the mountain? Or
0: I mean, I'd what, rather have milk in that situation than, than not, not have, have milk. milk. Yeah, that's true.
1: I remember when the the Yetis turn to backtrack and focus on them. The Yetis turn up and then the character they're with. Speaks to them and set. Sa- and um, I can't remember the actor's name. The same guy who says the yak yak, Jonathan. And he's yes. like, she speaks Yeti. And then that's it. No one ever comments on it. No one ever. Comments on the absurdity of things, other than him. I like to. And think- that's
0: that's like that's the fun of it. Yeah. Because it's not taking itself seriously. No, it's it pointing isn't. pointing out those questions and just having fun with it. Yeah. You've got oh like, wow. Like because in the first one when he's got that scarab beetle under his under his skin on his arm. Yeah. Brennan Fraser just kind of puts a knife next to his arm and then goes yeah. ping and, and then it he gets flies it out. out. Yeah. And you're kind of there, like there's no mark, there's nothing. But you're just there going like, Oh god, this is a fun movie. Look at Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Man he's attractive. And oh the- <laughs> look at those hair.
1: And then oh, you- man. And then in the second one where they outrun they run faster than the speed of light because they have to get to a pyramid before because Brendan Fraser's son has a bracelet on his arm that's gonna kill him if the li- if the if the sun rises and hits a pyramid he has to get to. And if he's not in it, then when on that day, then he'll die. That's a very convoluted way of explaining it. And so yeah. they're running towards it, and they're like, oh no, the sun's rising. And then they run, and there's this shot of the sun rising and casting its light across the... Land and Brendan Fraser carrying his son meters in front of it, staying in front of it as he's running while it's catching up to him. God damn right! Is that how light works? Is Brendan Fraser faster than the speed of light? I mean, that's all I can interpret from that scene.
0: I am almost convinced that Brendan Fraser is faster. I mean, if he, if if anybody else was carrying him, if the rock was carrying him, I'd still be like, hang on. But (laughs) Brendan Fraser carrying him, that's fine. That's fine with me. I mean, if the son was just rising
1: soon and they were running for it then that would be fine but it's the fact that they cut away to show that no the light is literally crossing the earth as he's running just feet in front of it
0: It, i think it's better than like uh something like 2012 where they're escaping oh yeah john cusack running away from lava
1: and then he gets yeah and and then he gets in a car and then the lava is also just meters behind him so it's speeding up depending on whatever mode of transport but then when he
0: falls into the hole it stops stops until he gets out
1: yeah We've got sidetracked a bit because the whole reason I brought up The Mummy in the first place was because the main appeal of the Dark Universe was this idea that down the road they would be able to have versus films, essentially. You know, they could... Now the Mummy can fight Dracula or whatever, or the Wolfman. Like anyone would care about that. Yeah, but also it's sort of inherently flawed as well because they... I guess what they're trying to emulate is like the classic Universal monster movies, which did have crossovers. But the point is, they the reason they had those crossovers was because they had exhausted every other idea. Like those yeah, crossovers were weren't the end point. They were just, well, let's try this now. Let's and put I them can't
0: in. Them, I can't recall like any of them ever being, you know, none of them are remembered.
1: Well. I think the only ones that are fondly remembered in any way are the Abbott and Costello ones where they're like, yeah. well, let's just, let's just put Abbott and Costello in that, which is the comedy one. So if they wanted to do that, then, you know, let's get yeah, what we'd it, happily
0: watch another comedy. Let's we get just want some, what we do in the shadows. Let's yeah, do that.
1: Let's get some modern comedic duos in there and have them meet the mummy. Let's get key and peel and have them meet King the wolf the mummy. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man. See the pro I said that as a joke and now I definitely want it. And now I won't be able I to I would rest. love to see that. I won't rest until it happens.
0: But no, it'll be Tom Cruise in it again. Yeah. It'll be in all of the Dark Universe films until one of them gets successful. Yeah. Either Tom Cruise or The Rock. He, they're, in both, they're in all films.
1: Mm. We've just got to balance between the two of them. And then, Well, the, the other thing with The Mummy was they brought on Christopher McQuarrie to try and alter the script a bit and try and improve it, and then it just didn't work at all. Like, not even he could save that train wreck. He made Mission Impossible Fallout basically on the fly and wrote it you know as they were going along but he couldn't salvage the mummy
0: yeah and it just shows that like that the, the premise to begin with was the problem yeah Cause nobody nobody wanted another mummy movie especially not a mo- mummy movie where suddenly the like like the mummy's in his head and is like part of him and but like she's sexy to the wrong degree generally you know yeah, what I mean? <laughs> yeah. A similar problem to cats. Exactly, yeah. like you suddenly going like this shouldn't be sexy. Like the original mummy is like the yeah. female mummy is sexy, but only to like Imhotep. So like, oh, I
1: see. Yeah, I y- you yeah. See, like, when you say original mummy, you mean the brendan Fraser version, not the one from the '30s again. No, <laughs> <I thought that laughs> again, I, the OG mummy went, went brendan to Fraser. there, and I thought, wow, I must have missed that version. The deliberately sexy 1930s... What was it? Bol- hey, Boris any- Karloff mummy or something like that? Yeah, great.
0: Anybody wrapped up in tissue paper, oh, wow. gets me going. Well,
1: clearly, because we've got... Apparently, the Sofia Butella one is sexy in the wrong way. Yes. Sexy in like Her an undead like- sort of way.
0: Yeah, and you're kind of like, well, why do I want to... I don't oh, want to- she's I don't hot, to- but she's to- also
1: dead. I don't know.
0: Yeah, this is conflicting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Just look again. And, and back they, to- they- kind of
0: like... They, no, because yeah. there's that one scene where they, like, they all, like, Tom Cruise gets strapped down to a tablet table, um, and they, like, kind of unbutton his shirt, and then the mummy's going, like, diddling up his ha- up his chest and diddling down his pants and stuff. Uh, and then she's about to, like, stab him, and then the female companion turns up and is like, what, what's going on here? And it's kind of, like, this awkward look where Tom Cruise just goes, run! <laughs> and, and, like, that's it. And that's, like, that that's the, like... Well, that's the scene so why does it like how does how does it get out of that how does why is it sexualized and uh, it, oh it just really confused me at the time the,
1: yeah there's a lot of really we- oh I feel like I could talk about it for longer but I'm gonna focus on a good debut again you know I'll go for a good not not necessarily well yeah good good opening shot this is so this is a beginning and a first in a certain sense and I would say on that front you've got to go to the original Star Wars which is a very which is quite of a basic option but I think that's such a brilliant establishment of you know good guys bad guys this is the power dynamic go that's it yeah
0: I think as opening scenes go that is one of the most visually spectacular for the time for certain just because you're it's this. It, you're immediately set in this whole different world. Yeah. And you know that because you know there's spaceships. There's you're in the stars. And you know going from the tr- title crawl. Yeah. To a full on scene. That's like insane for the time. Mm. Being able to like do that it, practically. It's
1: a good use of the title crawl as well because it basically gets the minutia of it out the way and says this is what's going on. Whatever. Now here's how it plays out. Yeah. And I think there's a another really great opening shot that sort of works really well to establish a whole bunch of exposition visually is rear window because it specifically specifically in terms of how you look out into uh jimmy stewart's you know apartment complex you're looking at all of the main characters you're looking at everything he can see from his window you pan back in you're looking at his own broken leg. You see his, you know, his smashed camera picture of what looks like some sort of car crash. It's just really concise visual storytelling because you're just going through. There's no clumsy lines like you know. Remember when you broke your leg in that accident or whatever? Yeah, and it, when you fell down the stairs, yeah. really slowly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's and even going. When you were to, taking
0: pictures with your long, long camera. Yeah, that go use to spy on people.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Don't think, well, yes, Lisa, I was there when it happened, you see, because I just, I found my way through the stairs, and instead of going up them, I crashed down them, you see. Anyway, yeah, you what's the on? I was in a car accident, yes. and I flew out the rear window. It wasn't the accident that hurt me, it was the falling down the stairs afterwards, on the way home from the hospital. <laughs> anyway, has someone been murdered across the street? <laughs>
0: Let me take some
1: pictures. yeah. <laughs> And, and it even goes as far as to just show the thermometer and establish, oh, it's a hot summer then. And that as well as the fact that people are sleeping <laughs> oh, on Oh, he's got balcony. a fever. Yeah. Well, yeah, that as well. <laughs> One bead of sweat. Oh, his luck is so terrible.
0: Uh, First, France... the legs now, then. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Going back to uh, TV pilots or TV episodes that are established. really Wings. What? Nothing. Oh. Oh. Uh, Um, Arrested Development, I think, is a great... Because, especially for sitcoms, because it's really difficult to get a genuinely great sitcom pilot. Like, I still haven't watched the first season of Parks and Rec... Because everyone tells me it's not as good.
0: I, I wouldn't say that. I feel like the the first series of Parks and Rec. I wouldn't even be able to distinguish it from. Well, I mean, yeah, it's different. Yeah. it's very it's very different. In yeah, well, the dynamic I, yeah, because
1: I say that. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh. Not not good, but just it's still finding its tone. It's still trying to find its voice somewhere to place everyone. But yeah, with the rest I of de- yeah with the rest of development, I don't get that at all. Because literally within a few minutes of being on that yacht with you know, the Bluths, you understand their dynamic, you understand the tone of humour of the show, you get the premise, (laughs) you know, you get... There's
0: already so many iconic lines in that first episode. Yeah.
1: There's the fact that they even use, you know, Ron Howard being the narrator that seems like it's just there to be exposition, but then is actually a vehicle for humour as well. Like the fact that he says, Michael is smiling because this is his family, and he's decided he's never going to speak to them again. Yeah. And... Yeah, and I think it's just the case of every, even the actors themselves, because that's another thing in sitcoms where sometimes the, the actors and the writers won't know properly how to handle a character yet. You know, they're still trying to find the, the context in which they work best. Every performance in Arrested Development nails it right from the start. They know where to put the characters uh, yeah how they're going to interact with each other, where the humour is going to come from.
0: I think, uh, yeah, I think a lot of that, it comes from the fact that, obviously, Arrested Development was written... like you know, basically written all together, yeah, and then split up, yeah, because they went, oh, this would be funny to play off here, and this would be funny to play off here, yeah, yeah. And they had everything set up from the beginning, mm. so I think that obviously really helps within the pilot stage, yeah, because it's already it's already sorted. Mm. You don't have to det- no, you don't have to figure out what works and what doesn't work because they're going with whatever they're gonna do.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, the first line Will Arnett says is he has this exchange with. Um, Michael is bro- you know, Michael and Job or Gobe. I Job that Job. <laughs> Job not Michael. Go. Go- I don't know why. In my head then I saw it spelt out and I thought, oh wait, is it go? And oh, then I God. just realized oh Has that's it always been yeah, Go and that- I've been saying it wrong. Oh wait, that's the joke. Um so when Michael says, Is your cause he's, you know, preparing his magic act and he says, Is your trick gonna go well? And Job replies with tricks are what whores do for money, Michael. I'm a performer or something. And you're like, okay, yeah, and then you get what this is. Oh, in the League of Magicians, we demand to be taken seriously. It's just (laughs) every, yeah, it says so much about both the characters' professions, but also how they, what their own attitude is like Jobs yeah. needs to be taken seriously which comes back in the second episode when he's angry at not being given tasks to do like you yeah it just i there are things in that pilot that i'll laugh at because they're setting up characteristics later on that are still really funny yeah
0: there's, there's so many moments where it's one of the very few shows that you if you know every single moment of it That makes it funnier.
1: Yeah. Uh, Moving on, there's no segue for this, but moving on, and I was going to try and do this in a pattern of good, bad, good, bad, but I'm just... This has fallen apart completely now because I want to talk about (laughs) Reservoir Dogs. Ah. Simply because... And this is, I think, a bit of a hot take, or I'm not sure, but maybe I'm hitting you with my controversial opinions here. Um, Reservoir Dogs is a good film. I wouldn't call it one of Tarantino's best because a lot of people still seem to think a lot of people hold the opinion that it's, you know, one of Tarantino's best achievements. Even now, I think it's very solid. It's a good representation of what you can do as a filmmaker. But I think I think he's stronger now than he was at this point. He's more accomplished. Okay, so
0: if, give me give me a quick list of you know um, his best three. His best his worst three. three.
1: For me, I would argue his best three are Pulp Fiction. Which I know came only a few years after, but I think that shows how quickly he progressed from Reservoir Dogs, yeah. um, Inglorious Bastards, and maybe recency bias. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I would say
0: I've I, I've still not seen Once Upon a Time, yeah. Time in Hollywood, so I cannot. It's comment, just
1: but. having uh, that's a whole other thing. But I think in terms of in terms of Reservoir Dogs, I think it's it's a great setup for. And I want I want to say I don't think it's a bad film by any means. I think it is, if anything, just shy of transcendent like it's it's oh,
0: that that is those are big words to throw around i yeah like, i feel like especially in the modern times uh calling any kind of tarantino film transcendent yeah is um is very difficult yeah
1: but it's because there's you get the introductions to these characters and you have this sort of opening view into their lives but then that's sort of it and you don't necessarily dig that much deeper into them as people outside of their own history which might maybe be the point because they're not supposed to know each other that well but i think when you look at what tarantino has done i mean we know so much about you know sam jackson and john travolta in pulp fiction even though they themselves yeah, don't share they personal interest. details yeah and, and, you know, and how stuff like that watch story informs everything about Bruce Willis and how he views life throughout, you know, what his character's doing in Pulp Fiction. And then, and I think he's just gone from strength to strength. So I don't, and I bring Reservoir Dogs up strictly because I think it's a really, I still think it's a great debut because it is a case of a filmmaker showing this is what I can do with a, with a limited budget and limited resources now we're going to see what he can do
0: after that yeah it's it's the classic case of you know um not being able to make the thing that he want really wanted to make and yeah. then like next time being given that opportunity and absolutely smashing it out of the park
1: yeah um so but going from that to it's a bit like what the Coen Brothers do with Blood Simple in a certain sense, because that's another debut, and that is a really tightly controlled, really excellently paced thriller that has you know their sort of elements of comedy and tragedy just in the midst of it. But then you can see how a few years later down the road, how Barton Fink and Fargo is a progression from that, and then they just yeah, go even further. Yeah, I think further. there's
0: a huge like there's a reason that um, yeah. people talk about Barton Fink and yeah. Fargo, like they. They clearly have, they found their yeah. place within those two films.
1: Yeah. And much like Pulp Fiction for Tarantino, you know, Barton Fink and Fargo was only a few years down the road for them. So it shows how quickly, how a strong debut can really sort of propel you to complete greatness.
0: Yeah, I suppose like you, you've had that time then, you know what works, you know what doesn't yeah. work and you just you just go with it. Mm.
1: I would say in terms of a debut that I think really I mean, obvious there's like obvious stuff like Citizen Kane and stuff, but that's a, you know, sort of that seems like a go-to answer. So I would say a really great debut that is instantly top tier for that filmmaker is being John Malkovich. Because what Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman do with that in terms of I mean, I guess it's a right is it a right? I don't know if it's actually a writing debut for Kaufman. I don't know if that was his first film, but either way it it certainly put him on the map and i feel like for spike jones as well and his direction to just take you through this completely weird world and far out concepts and have you buy into it is really impressive
0: it it is one because it's one of the strangest films like yeah. premise wise
1: yeah and it ties into both of them in a sense because jones would like later on to do her to take these really weird concepts and make the audience invest in them completely and have them be serious function as serious dramas as well. I mean I never thought that watching Joaquin Phoenix fall in love with a computer for two hours would be really gripping and emotional. But then it is because you know because of the lessons I think they learned in being John Malkovich, which is not to just look down on a weird concept. You just you treat it as this is part of the story, this is a function Yes, this is, this is our work. world that we're in, yeah. Uh,
0: and I can tell you that, um, based on my very quick Google search, uh, it is Kaufman's uh, film debut. Oh of wow! Writing. See, you're better. You've researched this better than I have. Yeah, only because I literally just googled it right now. Ah, right. Well then,
1: um, yeah. I'll go back to bad debuts for a minute. Um, not because this is necessarily a significant film or even an important one, but just something that stood out because it was one of the few genuinely bad debuts that I've seen and that I have a history with which is the Fred Savage directed Daddy Day Camp. Now, if you know Fred Savage is the uh, the kid from the Princess Bride who's sick. Yeah. Yeah, and he then and he has he does have a good career directing on TV. He's done a lot of episodes of Always Sunny. Then he's done a lot of other, you know, strong comedies. And he directed Daddy Day Camp, which is a sort of sequel to the um, Eddie Murphy film Daddy Daycare, which I really liked as a kid, oh. but I haven't seen since. Oh, no. I liked it as a kid, I haven't watched it since. I imagine it doesn't no. hold up,
0: yeah. Because. Um, I'm now looking at the, the, uh, the, the DVD title oh. <laughs> and seeing that it's Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They
1: replaced... They <laughs> took Eddie Murphy, because I liked the Eddie Murphy one, again, as a child. I don't want to incriminate myself here. But I liked the Eddie <laughs> Murphy one, and then even as a kid, I remember noticing, that's just a different guy. And because they took Eddie Murphy and replaced him with Cuba Gooding Jr., and so any it's like
0: when they did um bruce almighty and then they did evan almighty yeah and they expected everyone to be okay with it They're just being like oh yeah well, evan the character that we all love from bruce almighty he should be the main yeah. character of the next well,
1: one Well, that's the thing as well i don't know if they i don't know if they intended for them to be the same character were they supposed to be the same person or was it just did they wipe the slate clean i've no idea i haven't looked it up i like to think i think i find it funnier if the studio were banking on the fact oh. that people you know would just assume well it's cuba gooding jr it must be the same person as eddie murphy
0: that's it well i hate to, i hate to tell you oh to no they just it. <laughs> it's daddy day camp brackets also known as daddy daycare 2 oh and it is the second installment in the daddy daycare yeah. <laughs> film series <laughs> Yeah. It has a 1% rating oh, on Rotten Tomatoes yeah. and it's so, considered to be the one of the worst sequels ever produced. I mean, it
1: yeah, I can't I can't really find an argument against it. Actually, I'm led to believe they might have tried to play it off as the same character because I know the son, Eddie Murphy's son in the first film is like 4 years old and he's called Ben and then like from what I remember about seeing Daddy Day Camp is the son is like 10 years old and he's also called Ben. So, They are 100% just trying to make the same character. Either that...
0: Charles Charlie Hinton is the name of Eddie Murphy's character. And Charlie is the name of... No last name. Junior's... yeah, It just says Charlie. Just Charlie.
1: (laughs) He's he's adopted a one name. He just goes by the singular noun now. He's like, oh oh, yeah, it's Daddy Day Camp. Run by Charlie.
0: Oh no, it is... He was played by Eddie Murphy in the original yeah. film. It, they are the same the, characters. Okay, They're right. Straight up, the well, exact then, same in, in which case,
1: that might be... No offense to Cuba Gooding Jr., but that might be one of the worst downgrades in film history. Just not even anything against Cuba Gooding himself. Just the fact that Eddie Murphy is a comedic actor and Cuba Gooding Jr. is not at all. Yeah. And there's no history in comedy... Unless you count stuff like Jeremy Guire, but I don't know if you would. So, yeah, that's... wow. So, yeah.
0: I, I can't even remember the last thing I've seen Cuba Gooding Jr. in. Um, but I want it to never be. <laughs>
1: Daddy, Daddy Day Camp. Camp. <laughs> yeah, probably a good call. So, yeah, not not an ideal directing debut from Fred Savage, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately.
0: Sorry, I'm, I just, I've, I've done a quick Google of Cuba Gooding Jr., um, so his movies, you've got, yeah. um, his like the, the top five that it's shown me here. We've got men of honor. Yeah. From the year 2000. Mm-hmm. We've got Jerry Maguire from 1996. We've got boys in the hood. Right. From 1991. Yeah. We're not going to go through all of these, radio. radio. No, no, no. There's okay. only five. There's only five. Oh, right. It's radio yeah. from 2003. And then there's Snow Dogs. Oh, I don't remember seeing Snow Dogs, but I remember
1: seeing the video cover of it. Yeah, yeah.
0: But... I, it's it's Snow Dogs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, wow! It's where did it all go I love wrong? The fact
0: that he's in a few Good Men and <laughs> and Pearl Harbor. Yeah. and coming to America yeah. and Jerry Maguire, and then we've got daddy day camp yeah and norbit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god it's sad wait is it... he is he the is he the like the the other dude in norbit
1: i don't know because i don't recall seeing that many other people in norbit but i felt it's like just, most of that just was eddie murphy, murphy, eddie murphy yeah oh man um okay god I'll, that film was I'll... a technical marvel. We're ge- <laughs> It's so impressive how they, um, you know, did you know all of those people were Eddie Murphy? It's very shocking, I know. So, to end on some sort of, you know, mildly positive note, because I thought, well, we're running close to time, and I'm trying to think of anything that's somewhat admirable. Well, not somewhat admirable, these are very good opening scenes. Um, So... Francis Ford Coppola has a really good knack for making great opening scenes, I can't help but notice, in stuff like you've got Apocalypse Now, which sets this amazingly, hypnotically brutal tone by watching all the trees explode and then trying to remind yourself that there's people inside those, or underneath those trees, and then that's just something that, you know, with the great soundtrack by The Doors as well, and then The Conversation has that brilliant opening scene where you're just going inside Gene Hackman's character's mind and seeing all of the activity bustling around and the constant stream of information that's hitting him and then most of all I think perhaps the best one of all is The Godfather because that entire opening shot with I can't remember the actor's name but as he's explaining his situation and his plight about how his daughter has been you know attacked by these men who have been has escaped justice and he's pleading with Don Corleone to do something about it because in that one shot you are told this story and it sort of draws you in to sympathize with it to a degree where you're, you know, within that, within the space of just a few minutes in the opening, you're suddenly, it's like you've signed a warrant to go along with the crime saga that's unfolding because you see their purpose and you sympathize with the role that the mob plays in that society.
0: Yeah, it it does a fantastic job of, you know, bringing you in it, again like we said before, like it brings you into that world and suddenly like after that scene you're in, you are you're sold. Yeah. And it you never once thinking about else.
1: Yeah. And it sets a great tone in terms of in terms of the moral compass of where you're at as well because can you you can sympathize with this guy but does that mean you you want him, you want him to get justice through this route or and if that's the case, then do you end up, do you have to admit that you're inadvertently condoning what the mob are doing? Because even if you don't, even if you only support them carrying out justice for this guy, it's like Coppola is asking you to question, well, this is all the baggage that comes with it. So, yeah, that's, that is what that's about for detailed analysis.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've got no real sort of,
1: well, yeah, I lost, I, thought, my,
0: I lost my train of thought. That's really annoying. Yeah,
1: I felt like I've rushed through that a bit strictly because I didn't want to end on the note of Daddy Day
0: Camp. I think we should have. Ended oh on Daddy well, Day well Day Camp. now we Man, brought it back up, so, so we
1: now we brought it back up, so we inadvertently have ended up on this note to finish. I'm fine with that. Okay. I think
0: Daddy Day Camp may be one of the best sequels yeah. <laughs> of all time. Well. Remember, right, because, because we're not even talking about film. it as
1: a sequel, we're talking about it as Fred Savage's directorial debut. So
0: I can't yeah. speak for Fred Savage as a director, as I have not seen yeah. Daddy Day Camp.
1: My only memories but are watching my... it as a child, and even as a child thinking, this is worse. This is worse I, than the I can, thing I liked.
0: I can say, without without a fraction of doubt, having not seen the film, that it is the greatest film Fred Savage has ever directed. <laughs>
1: Oh well if should we make we can make that our bar for the opening episode yeah, that's, and if we if this yeah. episode has brought you more entertainment than daddy day camp then we've succeeded.
0: Or or we <laughs> I think that is a very low bar and yeah I still worry we won't hit it. Oh no don't say that. I mean we've
1: well the only alternative is to say you know are we as good as the opening shot of The Godfather or the pilot of Ooh. Arrested Development. We've got. Or I haven't picked snow any. dogs. <laughs> I, I haven't picked any middle of the road debuts. I didn't think of. Let's just. Are pick, we as good as Alien Three? Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know. A, well, the problem is saying "always oh, good as Alien 3, Does that set the expectation that we're then our next one is going to have to be as good as Seven
0: or as good as Alien Four?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That. Oh, that's a. Yeah, that's smart because you can
0: only go up. Yeah, from we're there. not going in the Seven direction.
1: Yeah, we're definitely going to go more in the Alien direction. Oh, so it'll be worse still. Oh, wow.